So we are in Romans, and last week we finished chapter 8, so we're on chapter 9 now. And the thing about chapters 7 and 8 is Paul is talking about walking in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. And the little metaphor that we came up with last time, which I still kind of like, is that not to be under the law in the Jewish sense is very much like having moved from Oklahoma to Kansas. You're in a different jurisdiction. And in our little metaphor in Oklahoma, there's a death penalty. In Kansas, there isn't. And so when you move from Oklahoma to Kansas, you are no longer subject to a penalty of death for transgressions in sin. That doesn't, however, mean that the rules have changed. It's still just as illegal to commit adultery in Kansas as it was in Oklahoma. You can't steal in Kansas, just like you couldn't steal in Oklahoma. You can't covet in Kansas, just like you couldn't covet in Oklahoma. So the rules have not changed. The Torah is the same. The only thing that has changed is you are no longer subject to the death penalty. That's literally the only change. One of the problems I've had with Sunday Christians, I mean, there's lots of flavors of Sunday Christians, and we'll get into Calvinists today because we're going to go into Romans 9 and 10, is they interpret walking according to the Spirit as doing whatever you feel like. In other words, well, the Spirit told me X, Y, or Z, and, and my personal perspective is the Spirit is never going to tell you to go against the written word of God. If you are getting instructions from the Spirit to go against the written word of God, I will suggest that you're probably listening to the wrong spirit. Or you're listening to your own spirit, which is the same thing. So that's sort of what we talked about last time. And all of this is by way of explaining to Gentiles what the function and purpose of the Torah is. So now what we're going to go into is we're going to talk about Israel and the Jews in this same context. That's what chapter 9 is going to do for us. So let's start. Chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. A couple of things about that. The first thing that I want to sort of highlight is Paul loves his own people. One of the things that's very fashionable these days is multiculturalism. Everybody is the same and all things are the same and there's no difference and on and on and on. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, no, I have special affection for my own people. And that is good and that is right. And the idea that you should not have special affection for your own people simply because in Paul's case, he's going to another people, Gentiles, 
with the intention of carrying the word of God to them with the intention that they're going to come into the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that he doesn't still have a special affection for his own people. So that's sort of thing one. Thing two, notice in verse four, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. With the exception of the covenant with Noah, which is the first covenant listed in scripture. With exception of that, there are no covenants with Gentiles. All of the covenants are with Israel, including the new covenant. So every covenant in the Bible after Noah, which is with the whole human race, is with Israel. And he says that. They're the ones that have the covenants. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go through Israel's current state. And I've got a bunch of comments to make, and I'm not sure where I'm going to make them, but we'll read a little bit here, and then I'm going to come back and talk some. So we're now down to chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, you all, of course, remember that Abraham, in fact, had Ishmael before Isaac was born. And what God told him is that the promise that had been made to Abraham was going to go through Isaac. It was not going to go through Ishmael. Now, having said that, God said to Abraham, he's your son. You love him. I will make of him a great nation also. So it isn't the case that Ishmael has been cast onto the ash heap of history. God made him a great people also. It's just that he's not the one that gets the covenant that God made with Abraham. That's going to go through Isaac and through Jacob. And as we'll see in just a minute, you have Jacob and Esau, which is a similar situation. And by the way, Esau was himself a wealthy man, and it wasn't until Esau became Edom, and Edom became an enemy of Israel when Israel was being attacked by foreign invaders. That's when God got grumpy with Edom. He wasn't particularly grumpy with Edom simply because he wasn't the chosen son. And Paul's going to talk about that in a minute. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what he's doing is he's mixing two things here, which I guess he gets to do because he's an apostle. The first one is the promise that's made to Rebekah. You know, when the twins were contending with each other in her womb, she went to God and says, what on earth is going on here? How come these two little kids are making such a ruckus? 
and God told her that there's going to be two nations born and that the older will serve the younger. So that is God deciding which one it's going to be. And then, as I said just earlier, Jacob of a love Esau have I hated is, at least historically in the Torah, a reaction to a period of history when Esau, the Edomites, became enemies of Israel. And God got really grumpy with the Edomites because they had assisted the invaders in suppressing their brother. But the point Paul is making here, and he's grabbing these examples, is God is the one who decides through whom the covenant with Abraham is going to pass. It is God who decides what the line of the Messiah in the flesh is going to be. It isn't simply the firstborn. In fact, in no case is it the firstborn. It's always a younger son. But in any case, the promise goes through whom God decides the promise will go, not through whom the physical parent wishes it would go. Now down to verse 14. As I say, we got, I've got a whole bunch of comments to do, but we sort of need to read a bunch of this before it will only make sense. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And again, when we go through the plagues, we have a long conversation pretty much every year about did Pharaoh have any choice? And for those of you who have been through the Torah a number of times, the answer is yes, he did. He had a choice in that at the beginning of the exercise, Moses made a very reasonable request. Our God has called us. He wants us to go into the wilderness and sacrifice for him. Can we have a long weekend? That was the request. Pharaoh should have been able to grant that. When Pharaoh stiffened his back, stiffened his own neck, okay, God didn't do it. He did it himself and said, I don't know this God and I'm not going to let you out. That's when, in my little metaphor, dancing with a bear in a cage. You've got absolute free will deciding whether or not to get into the cage. But once you're in the cage, it's up to the bear when the dance is over. And so Pharaoh chose to get into the cage with God, and once he's in there, it's no longer his choice when he's going to get out. So yes, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but only after Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. And as everybody, at least in the room, knows, I am not a Calvinist. So on we go. Verse 19. Who will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Stop a minute. What he's doing is he is quoting from Jeremiah 18. 
Jeremiah 18, 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So you got to remember historical context for Jeremiah. When Jeremiah is writing, the northern kingdom has been gone for almost 100 years. So all that's left of Israel is Judah. Judah is in the process of being sanded off flat by the Babylonians. And one of the things that Israel does is says, as is predicted in Deuteronomy, oh God, if you hadn't abandoned us, none of this horrible stuff would have happened. And what God is saying is, A, you abandoned me, I didn't abandon you, and once you have abandoned me and gone off into violence and so forth, then I will do to you as I have promised to do to you, which is to say, I will scatter you, send you in exile, and cut you off. So that's the context here. It's probably as good a time as any to talk about that. Again, those of you who have been around a while understand that in Israel's case, exile is therapeutic, which is to say when Israel falls into apostasy and violence and injustice and God gets to the point where he can't stand them anymore, he sends them into exile. And the place that they get sent into exile is designed to correct the thing that led them to be exiled. So starting, the first exile is to Egypt. And the reason they go to Egypt is because of mistreatment of Hagar, Ishmael's mother. And of course you all know Hagar means the stranger. And when they come out of Egyptian slavery, one of the things that Moses emphasizes over and over and over again is you cannot mistreat the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt and you know how bad it is to be mistreated as a stranger. So mistreating Hagar, the stranger, sends them to Egypt where they get enslaved and they get mistreated because they are strangers. And when they come out of exile, God says through Moses, now remember what it's like to be a stranger and don't ever treat strangers that way again. Next one that happens is idolatry. They go into idolatry, they follow other gods, they commit adultery, so what God says is, oh, okay, you guys want to do idols? Fine, we'll send you to Idol Central, which is Babylon. And they go to Babylon for 70 years. And when they come back out of Babylon, the impulse to idol worship has been wrung out of them. The next major exile is the Roman exile that happens in 70 AD. The rabbis, as far as I know, universally, I mean, as far as anybody's universal, say the reason we got sent into the Roman exile is because we couldn't get along. Baseless hatred. We couldn't stand each other and we kept fighting and we kept squabbling and Yeshua himself was a victim of that baseless hatred. So God says, oh, okay, baseless hatred. Let's do baseless hatred for a while. And so they go into the Roman exile and you have pogroms, you have expulsions from countries, you have persecution all of which culminate in the Holocaust. So God says, baseless hatred, huh? 
Okay, I'll show you what real baseless hatred is like. So the idea here is Israel, when it's sent into exile, is sent to a place which is designed to purge them of the problem. Now, coming back to Paul, what Paul is saying is, I have been talking to Israel, the Jews. I have been pleading with them. I have been telling them the gospel. I have been preaching to them. And they throw me out of the synagogue and they stone me and they do all sorts of stuff. They are not listening. And I wish they would because the only road to salvation is through the grace of God, through the Messiah. So if they're not listening to me, then they're lost. And if they're lost, I am grieving for them. That's what that first paragraph was. I wish that I would be cut off and that they would be saved. In other words, I love them so much. Now, probably the clearest statement here is in Ezekiel. It's all over the Tanakh. So I'm not cherry picking because it's pretty much everywhere, but a clean statement of it is in Ezekiel 37. The dry bones. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he gets taken and sees a field full of dry bones. And he's asking this live. And of course, the bones are the whole house of Israel. Notice it says the whole house of Israel not Judah, and not Israel. It's the whole house, both, both houses. And we go through the business where he prophesies over the bones and flesh comes upon them and breath comes upon them and so forth. And I want to go down to Ezekiel 37, 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. What does Paul wish that he could be? Cut off. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Notice the emphasis on raising them from their graves. Over the thousands of years, Israel has gone into exile. People have died in exile. And those people, according to this, are going to be raised from their grave and they're going to be brought into Israel. So Paul here, as he's talking about the Jews that are not listening to him and will not accept the Messiah for what seemed to them really good reasons, those people are going to die in their sins. In fact, from our perspective, looking back at Paul, they're already dead. They're all dead. And what God says here in Ezekiel is I am going to take all of those people and I'm going to raise them from the dead and I'm going to bring them back to Israel. In other words, I have not forgotten my people. I have not forgotten my covenant with them. And just like I sent them into exile for therapeutic reasons so that the nation Israel would learn not to mistreat the stranger, the nation of Israel would learn not to worship idols, 
The nation of Israel would learn not to treat their neighbors with baseless hatred. Those exiles were all necessary so the nation could learn those lessons. And the individual people who have died in that process are still part of the nation Israel. I will raise them from their graves. I will bring them back to Israel. And I will put my word in their heart like I intended at the beginning. The poster child for that is the generation of the spies in the wilderness. And the rabbis say, this is not scripture, this is rabbinic, that at the end of the age, when God opens the graves, that generation in the wilderness will rise up out of their graves in the wilderness, and they will return to the land with Moses leading them, because Moses is also buried in the wilderness. That's rabbinic, that's not scripture, but it's certainly very much in the spirit of Ezekiel 37. What I am suggesting is the nation Israel as a body is composed of individual Hebrews. The nation Israel is being carried through a historical process by God. The nation Israel is learning not to mistreat the stranger. The nation Israel is learning not to worship idols. The nation Israel is learning not to engage in baseless hatred. The individual Hebrews along that path Many of them, all of them, are dead. And what I am reading here in Ezekiel, and I will read here in Romans in a minute, is the idea that all of those individual Hebrews are members of the nation Israel, and in the process of carrying the nation Israel through the process of getting them where God wants them to be, he has not forgotten those individual Hebrews. They're going to be raised from the dead, and they are then going to be judged according to what they did, good or bad, but they are still members of Israel. Everybody understand my perspective here. So as Paul is bemoaning the fact that his countrymen won't listen to him, and he wishes himself cut off if they would just hear and accept what all of Scripture attests to, is there will be a resurrection and all of Israel will be brought back into the land and in other places David will be their king. So God hasn't lost any of his people but I guess the easiest way to describe it is a lot of his people have been made examples of and that's been necessary for the advancement and the development of the nation Israel. So then we have this business with the potter and the clay. And first off, one vessel for an honored use, another for a dishonorable one. I think I've said this before. You may have heard me say it. you got a lump of clay, and you fashion that, and one of them is this beautiful uh, vase that you put flowers in, and you fire it, and it's fine china and just delicate and translucent and gorgeous. And the other one's a chamber pot. The fact that some of it is made into a chamber pot does not mean that it's useless. You need chamber pots. Otherwise, you're up to your armpits and you know what. So the fact that some of them are made for dishonorable use, quote unquote, doesn't mean that they are rejected, doesn't mean that they're useless, doesn't mean that their lives are wasted. They are simply not this beautiful translucent celadon vase. They're chamber pots. And what he's saying here is God gets to decide who's the chamber pot and who's the beautiful vase. He's the potter. 
And so what this goes back to is what I just did that long riff on. The nation Israel is the important thing. The individuals may be shed along the way, but God will collect them up at the resurrection. God takes the same lump of clay and he cleaves it into two or 10,000. And this lump he wants to make into a ballerina, this lump he wants to make into a blacksmith, that lump he wants to make into a carpenter. The problem is each one of those lumps has a will of its own. So as he's trying to shape, he may shape this one into a ballerina, which means that she's long, slender, tall, graceful, but she may be an absolute slut, in which case the clay is fighting the potter. With your blacksmith, you make this guy stubby and stocky and strong and all that kind of stuff, and he may turn into a fine man or he may turn into a crook. That part God doesn't control. What he controls is this guy is stocky and brawny and is built for hammering stuff all day. Whereas the ballerina is slender and graceful and not built for hammering stuff all day. According to the blacksmith, the ballerina would have no place to dance because the stage would fall down. We're all necessary, but we're not all the same. And the other part of that is the clay has a mind of its own. And the clay may decide that it doesn't really want to do what it was designed to do. Let's go back to 919 and let's just plow through the paragraph. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Stop there a minute. We sort of went into vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, and the implication there is that he decides who the vessels of wrath are and who the vessels of mercy are. And I do not believe that, quite frankly. First place, vessels of wrath, he has got his choice. It is not that he needs to make them special. They're making themselves. That's an important thing. Because what God says, starting back in Genesis 6, I believe, is the human heart is only evil continually. This is before the flood he says that. And after the flood... He says it again. The human heart is only evil continually, but I'm not going to destroy it with a flood again. The heart has not changed going across the flood. It is still evil continually. So the idea of him having to make vessels of wrath, he's got his pick of the litter. The comment was his translation says endures with vessels of wrath. And the point is he has got lots of vessels of wrath to choose and he is able then to wait 
to judge or to deal with them until such time as doing so would suit his purpose. Going back to my example of Israel with exile, God puts up with Israel for a long time before he finally whistles up the Babylonian Empire and sends them into exile. He calls them, he brings droughts, he does all sorts of stuff to try and get their attention and get them to repent. And people for hundreds of years live in this state and they die in this state and they aren't the ones who have gone into exile even though they individually were every bit as deserving of exile. So he has endured them until such time as it suits his purpose to make a move. So that's how I am reading this. Thing one is the vessels of wrath create themselves. He creates honorable and dishonorable use. The vase and the chamber pot, that he does. But the thing that turns it into a vessel of wrath is us. And the thing he then can do is he can deal with that vessel of wrath at his convenience whenever he wants to make some kind of a point. Now, we have a quote here from Hosea. Let me read the quote again, and it's down in uh, 925. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So the question is, who is not his people? You understand the conundrum here. The point is, he is going to bring his people back. He is also going to bring other people in. So this is not a, I'm done with Israel forever. This is, because Israel has been unfaithful, I am going to bring others in. But as we said earlier, especially with respect to Ezekiel and so forth, I am going to bring my own people back. Verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would have led to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The point here is, Gentiles who don't know nothing about Torah but do recognize the opportunity that they have been given when Paul preaches the gospel. They recognize the opportunity, and they grab the opportunity by faith, even though they don't know anything about Torah. And it has always been my assertion that Paul is writing to try and teach the rudiments of Torah to dumb Gentiles who don't know it. And Israel, who has been filled with pride, because being God's chosen people, instead of being faithful and pursuing by faith, they have pursued it by right. I am born a Hebrew, therefore I am one of the chosen people, therefore I am one of God's own. True statement, but that also may mean that you'll die in exile. Like last week's metaphor where we're talking about predestination, you buy a ticket from Denver to Chicago, 
on a train, you have now predestined yourself to go to Chicago. And if you get on the train and you don't get off, you'll arrive in Chicago. But you have a choice whether or not you get on the train. And then you have a choice whether you get off in Topeka or you get off in Peoria or any number of the places that this train stops. So the fact that you are predestined, that you have bought a ticket for Chicago, doesn't mean that you're going to get there. You have to stay on the train. And what Israel does is have people scattering off the train at every stop, but they're still part of Israel. The other thing, I've talked about this, Ron Dart actually said it more concisely than I have. One of the things about Judaism at this time in history, remember the Council of Jerusalem, you had the circumcision party. And these were Pharisees who had the Holy Spirit, they talked in tongues, they believed in Yeshua, they were in the Baptist sense saved. But they did not believe that Gentiles could ever be part of the kingdom of God. And so if a Gentile wanted to come into the kingdom of God, they had a process by which they brought him into it, which involved circumcision. And for an adult male, circumcision is kind of a big deal. And so what you have is a party of former Pharisees who are believers in Messiah, who are part of now this new sect called the Way. And their vision for this sect is, yeah, Gentiles can come in, but they got to come in the same way they come into Judaism. Otherwise, they don't get to be part of the club. What Dart said very succinctly, and I liked it very well, is if that party had prevailed, then Christianity would be a minor sect of Judaism, and it would not have spread throughout the world. So the reason that God is blinding Israel is so that this new religion, Christianity, will not simply be a dead-end sect of Judaism. It has to open up to the Gentiles in order to spread. But if the party of circumcision prevails, that will never happen. So in order for the gospel to spread, those Jews have to be blinded. The idea that God sends prophets to Israel all the time and they don't listen. I mean, that's the entire story of the Tanakh is God sends prophets to them and they don't listen. Yeshua was a prophet that he sent to them and they didn't listen to it. Paul is a prophet and they aren't listening to him either. So in order for the gospel to get beyond ethnic Hebrews and out into the world, those folks have to be shuttled off onto a side track and they don't get to go to Chicago. But again, the point here is that doesn't mean that they are doomed forever. Because going back to our Ezekiel 37, there will be a resurrection and God will gather them all up and he'll bring them back to the land and we'll have a come to Jesus meeting. That's going to happen. And at that point, you may have some of them who are wicked and don't and they won't make it. But one of the things I have said very often is I'm happy to discuss the gospel with any Jew, but I also don't really worry about a devout Jew who has a worship relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will sort that out. God knows his own. And yes, it's wonderful if they come to understand and accept Messiah and all of that. I certainly think that's a wonderful thing. But I am not one who believes that somebody like Rabbi Sachs, Jonathan Sachs, or David Foreman, I love those guys' teachings. 
And I listen to them teach, and I says, why aren't you a Christian? And they love God, and they are devout men and so forth, but they just don't see it. The point I'm making, and Paul will talk more about this in, in chapter 10. We've already conceptually covered a lot of chapter 10, even though we haven't read it. The whole point here, especially when we get to the grafted in and all that kind of stuff and the branches cut off and so forth, all revolves around this point that Ron Dart made more eloquently than I have, the idea that some of the Jews, ethnic Hebrews, have to be gotten out of the way if the gospel is going to spread because otherwise it will simply become an obscure sect of Judaism, which is not what God wants. So just as he sends his people into exile to make a point, he has also hardened some of his people, blinded them, I believe, is the New Testament metaphor, because he's got points to make and he needs those folks out of the way. Et ha-shama.